Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right. right. Hello. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and I have on the line, as I always do, and I'm thankful for Mr. Chris Sheridan. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good uh, and thankful to be here, too. I am grateful to be alive. Sometimes, you know, we forget that. It's good to <laughs> it's good to be alive. You know, there's a lot, obviously, a lot of challenges out in the world today. But, you know, one thing we can say is it's like the people that say, uh, you know, another day above ground is a or any day above ground is a good day. Right. <laughs> so we're not dead yet. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we don't know what that adventure holds for us. Uh, you know, I have a feeling, but uh, and we all have our feelings of what may lie beyond, and I don't think it's an end. Uh, but you know, we don't know exactly what it is, so we got to make the most of uh, what we got here today, right? Yes, all right. So do. today we're going to be doing things a little differently. Um, I actually am going to start with uh, my normal thing, where I thank everyone because I do. Uh, speaking of grateful, I'm appreciative. Appreciative. There we go. That was the right way to say that, I think. Of everyone who is supporting the show, thank you for uh, for your financial and uh, you know spiritual and uh, feedback support that you give us. Uh, please, uh, you know, if there's a subject that you want to hear about, if you go to Anchor uh, FM slash Cosmic Eye C O S M I C E Y E, you can find uh, a link there to to contact us and actually you can you can leave a message if there's uh, something you want to hear or something you want to talk about you want to leave some feedback you know and and please uh, on on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening uh, please rate us uh, if you like us um, and uh, you know if you can offer any feedback in those areas I don't think you can leave feedback on iTunes but please rate us if you like what we're doing uh, it does help the show to get out to more people and so on and please uh, support us financially if you can if you're all at all able all right so we're going to uh, do something a little bit different today we're going to be a little more freeform usually uh, Chris and I like to prepare like we're giving a lecture or something um, and y- you know we do follow where the spirit leads us you know, on different tangents and stuff when we're talking, but today we're going all tangent. So um, we're going to try to stay in the realm of Comic-Con. Chris visited Comic-Con. We're going to talk about some mythology, maybe comics and, and uh, the sort of mythology of movies and, and why some of that stuff is really uh, so popular today and maybe what that says about our psychology, what uh, some of the symbolic and mythological meanings of uh, some of these different characters and stories mean and uh again whatever else kind of comes up we're gonna uh, let the holy spirit guide us as they say in the uh, christian circles so uh with that i want to uh kind of turn a little over a little bit to chris i'm gonna we'll go you know kind of back and forth but you went to uh to comic-con this weekend and you were kind of supporting your brother out there right tell us a little bit about what was going on uh, out out in san diego and, and what you guys saw and so forth yeah, well, he has a uh, you know, friend who has a booth, and he gets to come out and work it and have kind of a, not a paid vacation, but a, well, a paying vacation, a work vacation. Uh, and I get to go down and, you know, it's only, what, a two and a half hour drive from L.A. I can drive down and see my brother and hang out. And, you know, I have a long interest in science fiction. Uh, I saw 2001 when I was five years old. <laughs> it came out. Of course, I didn't understand it, but. I was really blown away and I loved it uh, growing up in the space age in the 60s uh, as a kid was was just amazing. It just seemed like all the science fiction was going to become real and watching the original you've got, Star um, Trek series. On you've got and some, TV. some nice work online, too, um, from your 2001 work that you did uh, while you were in school, right? Some papers you wrote and stuff. I, I, I seem to remember that. Yeah, that would be up at uh, metaphysicalfilmschool.com. Uh, a site I put up a while back. I want to maybe get back into it. And actually, maybe I'll be inspired by this show and do something on uh, comic and uh, superhero uh, myths uh, and how they relate to um, us today. But yeah, I have some Kubrick things out there. Huge Kubrick fan. All right. I am. So yeah, I was able to go down to so Comic-Con. I think, and, uh, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I just and... want, in case anyone is not, I don't know who wouldn't be, but in case anyone's not familiar with Comic-Con, it is a, a big convention of, of comics and anime and fantasy and sci-fi 
uh, that's held. Uh, is it held every year in San Diego or does it move around? Well, it is every year in San Diego, but I think there are other Comic-Cons okay. um, around the country. That's, or maybe that's the gold other, standard uh, con- of Comic-Cons, though, well. right? The one in San Diego? It, it, it's, it's the one. It's, the, it's ground zero all for right. all things comics. And, uh, and they've kind of expanded out. It's you know, the video game things and even just Rick. Tom Cruise showed up talking about the new Top Gun movie that's coming out, although probably had more of a connection with San Diego because that where the convention center is right next to where all the boats are, where he was riding his motorcycle and the bar scene is right across the street. So there's a very micro local connection with that. Um, but it's a celebrity thing, you know, whatever. And it's uh, and people come and they, you know, a lot of them dress up, found some, saw some interesting uh, cosplay uh, people. There's just kind of yeah. something for everybody. What's, uh, um, you what know, it's you a lot of this in terms of, uh, costumes that seem to be popular was mostly anime and video game stuff, or was it the old kind of classic superheroes? Or what did you see predominating kind of in the, in the like what the kids were into and stuff there? Yeah, well, this year there seemed to be fewer, but I think there were maybe fewer in the places I went. Uh, there may be more cosplay, uh, you know, parts of the convention center. I think there's an upstairs atrium, which I didn't go this year. Uh, a lot of them hang out there. When you're walking along the floor, it's not really a good place to go cosplaying because it's just a crowd of people. You know, you're just trying not to step on the person's heels in front of you. That's pretty much the goal <laughs> there. Yeah. But to be seen, I think it needs to be a little more sparse. So I saw a lot more outside. Then they can do their poses and things. Uh, but I saw some random. There was a really good Ace Ventura pet detective. He had the walk down and the clothes. And he's holding his business card out like the movie poster. Uh, you know, kind of unexpected ones you wouldn't think at Comic-Con, but it's, uh, I like how they really get in character and they really mm-hmm. uh, kind of play it, you know? Um, and it's, uh, it's really an interesting, almost like a ritual thing where you can, it's more than just Halloween for grownups <laughs> or, or kids who haven't grown up. Um, you know, there, there's something a little more to it. And, uh, well, I think we're going to, and there's something for everybody a little bit, a little bit more. Cause I think yeah. that is an, an important thing. The, uh, the sort of uh, symbolic and mythological representations, maybe that that kind of kind of gets into. And there's some, uh, yeah, there's some mashups this year I hadn't really seen where they're combining ones, uh, like maybe from you know two different uh, movies. Like there was a Star Trek guy that had the alien face hugger on his face. Um, there was a, a Power Ranger, and the guy was wearing a cowboy hat, and it's like I, I didn't get it at first. And then I saw the gauntlet gloves, and he was he was the lone Power Ranger, so it was. Kind okay. of a mix and match. Uh, I think people, yeah, they're getting creative and having. Well, fun. I think that's um, just one of the many because things. I think that's um, that's one of the differences I think between maybe uh, maybe our generation and 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 some of the you know we're, we're I guess Chris you and I are roughly what they would say is Generation X, and then maybe the you know the the younger kids now that they're calling millennials and then what Generation Z or something or. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of the younger kids are more, uh, their, their creativity manifests more in mashups and kind of like rehashes and re, you know, and kind of, um, covers almost of things. So they take a lot of things they've seen from the, from the eighties or nineties on the, on the internet and they, and they, uh, they kind of, you know, put it through their own experience, I guess, and reinterpret it. We kind of did that, but you know, we did it in a different way and every generation is obviously different. I think our thing was more to rebel against stuff. You know, I think there's not a lot of room for rebelling anymore. So I think you just kind of try to incorporate things in and re reinterpret it, you know, reinterpret them now, which is a, you know, it's a different way of approaching it. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but this is a tangents show. So, so we're yes, right. it is. So let's get back to you, Comic-Con. I know one of the highlights, uh, because you told me about it, but tell the listener about, you know, uh, your, your cool experience there, uh, your 2001 thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, 2001 again, I'm a Kubrick fan. I love that movie. I still love it. I've analyzed it and watched it a thousand times and probably will a thousand more. Can't get enough of it. I really didn't check the schedule and I didn't know who was going to be there. I had no expectations. I had been before. Again, it's, it's a, couple of days I get to hang out with my brother in San Diego, which is really nice because he lives in Florida. So it's, uh, that's kind of the main thing. And I had been to some 
really cool events and comic cons past. So I feel like I've already gotten my, my fix with that. It's just to kind of be there and hang out and, and people watch. Um, but uh, NASA had a booth there because it was Saturday was the 50th anniversary of the moon launch, the uh, you know, July 20th. Well, the moon actually not the launch. That was the 16th. The 20th is when they actually um, strong set foot on the moon. So NASA had a little presence and, um, my brother and I were at the uh, the, play, the booth that he was working, kind of a pinup art gallery, and uh, and this astronaut who I guess had not flown in space, but he had gone through all the, the training and he was you know bona fide. Uh, and my brother was chatting him up, and they talked for a long time because you know we're really knowledgeable about stuff like that. Um, and kind of at the end, the guy goes, "Oh, and uh, you got to check out Gary Lockwood. You know that guy from two thousand one. He's he's signing autographs down there. I ran into him. It was really neat to meet him. So here's a real astronaut <laughs> giving my brother a tip on a movie astronaut <laughs> from one of the great classic movies of all time. And I had no idea he was going to be there. Had I known, that would have been first on my list. But I had no idea. This was this random, you know, again the spirit guiding. So we took off and went down there and. And found him, and there he was signing, you know, pictures of him in a space helmet. And he's, uh, I mean, he wasn't in a space helmet. The pictures, you know, depicted him, uh, you know, movie stills from 2001. And, um, you know, it was an opportunity for me to, you know, get some Kubrick stories or things like that. Well, as it turns out, um, he was pretty irreverent and, um, you know, had a sailor mouth <laughs> and um, very, very funny, very entertaining. And, after about the first five minutes, I kind of forgot he was Gary Lockwood and the whole, I didn't even ask him about Kubrick, you know, although he did share some stories. Um, it was just like, he was just like a cool neighbor or something you'd want to hang out with, you know, uh, once in a while and, uh, and just, you know, just listen to the stories that, uh, that he would tell and, uh, and, you know, more kind of an attitude um, that he had really unexpected. And it was just a, it was just a real, uh, real joy to, talk with him and he said about Kubrick he said he's the the smartest person other than oh the only person smarter than me <laughs> who I've ever worked with and and he did a film with John Cassavetes yeah. and you know and, and he was on the original Star Trek pilot so um he's which I think is how he got the at least the audition for oh, 2001 because that had aired a couple years before um or at least maybe maybe you know, a year before the uh, casting started for 2001, the original uh, uh, Star and you, Trek. And uh, you ended up uh, trading him uh, one of your books, uh, The Spirit in the Sky, and you signed it. And he, uh, what did he give you? He gave you some memorabilia? Uh, he, he gave me a signed, uh, signed picture of him in his uh, 2001 spacesuit um, that he was, I don't know, was just selling for 20 bucks or something. I figured, well, that's about what my book's worth. So we did a, we did a straight go. up trade. I signed my book, he signed a picture and, you know, and that was it. So, uh, but that was very fun. Um, and I, you know, anybody who has worked with Kubrick, you know, I, w I would have an interest in, you know, not finding out what he's like or that, or I, what I was more interested in, what's your experience working with someone like Kubrick? Not what's he really like or what's speaking he like of, Speaking of Tom Cruise, I think I remember, I remember Tom Cruise talking about working with Kubrick and he wasn't being disrespectful, but he was like, he's like the man, and I'm paraphrasing horribly, but it was something like the man's uh, methodology of working is somewhat of a mystery to me. He's like, I, he goes, I can't, like, I remember he was, he was working with him in that eyes wide shut and he had to like walk across the street yeah. or something. And he's like, we did the scene 75 times. And he's like, and I swear to God, I, I did it exactly the same every single time, but he saw something different in it. And I just, and I just didn't ask. So we just kept doing it. So he goes, he, he's a perfectionist. That's, that's all I'll say. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, he, he knows what, know he's, what looking he's looking for. for. Well, and, yeah. I mean, I think in that, that, or he, he knows, knows it when he sees, it, he, I sees guess. it when he sees it. And there's obviously a method to the madness because his films uh, definitely uh, stand the test of time and they're, they're, they're classics. So, you know, it's quite amazing to see that kind of work. And that, I mean, that attention to detail is, uh, is oftentimes the, the, you know, the hallmark of, of, of a true genius. Um, you know, we may not because we think, oh, that's good enough. It's good enough. But we're not seeing all the levels of, of, of performance and all the levels of, of things that are going on, you know, behind the scenes, maybe he sees something in the actor's face he doesn't like, maybe he sees the light hitting something in a strange way. You know, the, the amount of details that a, 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 an amazing director takes in is really quite incredible when you think about it. Um, oh, it is. And the, specifically with him, I know 
on multiple viewings, you know, even movies I've seen, like I said, dozens and dozens of times. Uh, sometimes I, you know, now and then I'll still catch, but it, it, there's like layers you know, that are already there, even in the finished product, the finished film. Um, there are things that either you didn't catch that are in the frame or maybe you see, gosh, why is this happening? Like 2001, if you look at it in a certain way, they're eating throughout the whole movie. Mm -hmm. You know, when the, the monkeys are eating, they kill each other. You know, they, uh, they're eating at the restaurant on the space station. On the way to the moon, he has a snack. When they're on the moon buggy going to see the monolith, they're eating. First time we see Gary Lockwood and Kirduela, um, the uh, two Discovery pilots on their way to Jupiter, they're eating. What do you, um, uh, it's in the last what scene. What do you make of eating. that? What it's do you like think that whole... is symbolically that, that's working itself out in those scenes? Well, since he goes through kind of our entire human evolutionary process from when we sort of became more human from, from the monkey, the proto humans, uh, at the beginning, that consciousness came in. Um, and it's that, you, you still need to eat. And what was interesting was at the beginning, you know, the monkeys are eating berries and they're, um, you know, and then they, when the monolith shows up, then they get the idea then to kill. And so now they kill for food uh, and they eat the raw meat. Um, but as time went on through the film, uh, say like on the way to the moon, uh, it, was a, it was a tray with, I guess there was just paste or something inside it. And, uh, but there was a covering and then there was a picture of chicken, a picture of peas, a picture mm -hmm. of, you know, whatever the, the thing was, you know, it was like you needed to, there's an know, abstract so there's a picture that, that could, in essence, because you're not really eating that thing. You're, you know, there's a sure. picture of it. Um, and then, um, and this goes out through the thing, but at the ending scene, uh, he's in, I guess, what's ostensibly a zoo wherever he went through the time portal, the Stargate to show up, uh, at this, uh, Louis the 14th decorated, uh, uh, you know, flat, I guess, where he, uh, he finished out the rest of his, his uh, normal life. Uh, and he's sitting at a, a table with full silver and a crystal uh, goblet for, uh, for the drink. And it looks like actual food. And he's cutting it with a knife and a fork instead of sucking it through a straw like mm. he did in space. Mm -hmm. And it's like an, an interesting choice with the Louis Fourteenth, which was kind of the height of the post-Renaissance, right at the cusp of the uh, revolution, and then, of course, the Industrial oh, Revolution. Yeah, so this and so forth, yeah. It would have been right at the end, you know, end of the last of that paradigm, uh, which is kind of interesting because then at the end, when the star child comes back and the baby in space, it's, it's then it's the next evolution, the next step. So, That's interesting. Yeah. That's in it's an evolutionary. Well, yeah, and, and uh, there's a there's another thing I think that I just was thinking about while you were talking. Um, you know, in, in Jungian sort of dream uh, analysis, sort of a shorthand food is is often representative of like is is representative of sustenance or a certain kind of maintenance of of uh, of life in a way. Um, it also can represent, obviously, obviously bread can represent, um, you know, the body, it can represent sort of life in its uh, tangible form. But, you know, that, that kind of idea that there's a certain sustenance and a certain sort of meaning, you know, it also can deal with meaning, like finding meaning in one's life. You know, the con consumption of food can, can sometimes be, be symbolically a representative of, of that, the idea of a search for meaning or, you know, you're hungry for meaning in essence, something like that. Um, you know, that, that, that you mm -hmm. can see that you could maybe see that symbolically uh, in that, in that work too, you know, man's kind of search for meaning through consciousness and man's consciousness kind of developing over time and, and so on as well. That, that might be, might be an adjunct to, you know, the kind of biological processes and stuff like that too. So great. And how close we are to nature. Yeah, yeah, know, that's that another thing. If you're farming or uh, raising livestock or hunting or anything like that, or even just, you know, plucking apart a chicken or something for dinner, uh, that's, it's a level of being close to the thing that you eat. Whereas I think in this one, it, it really got so abstract. It was just a colorless or just a colored paste that, at the, you know, on the Discovery ship, it wasn't even a picture. It was just the paste. It's like, why even bother? We're not even going to try to fool you into thinking it. 
tastes like yeah, something. Yeah, it's interesting, know? though. I mean, think about uh, how many of us eat food like that, though, that it really is not – it's so processed, you can't tell really where it came from. And, you know, it, it becomes yeah. a very interesting thing how disconnected from uh, from the earth we think we are because we're really not. Oh, disconnected from the earth. Yeah, right, right. Venturing out into space. Yeah. So that's that abstraction and that idea that technology is is some kind of a panacea to all our our you know our problems. When in in reality, it it, you know what it seems to be doing is disconnecting us from from the earth and from each other in a lot of in a lot of ways. It brings us together also, and you know when it's done right, like with social media, that actually is. Well, religious festivals yeah. are, are always centered around food or good offerings. Point. Yeah, that's a very good point. And from a movie perspective, I also watch Pulp Fiction with food in mind. They are eating throughout the entire movie. If they're not eating, they're talking about eating. If they're eating, they're also talking about eating. It's, uh, it's, you think it's about violence. No, it's, that one's another one that's really a lot about food, too. But conversation for a different uh, different time but personally at comic-con you know i was so interested in the you know my personal interest is the uh, the sci-fi stuff but what it's really kind of all about are these you know marvel and dc comic superheroes and um japanese mm-hmm. anime um, it's, it seems and... like these uh and we you know we talked about this before the show this is one of the things that we wanted to get into that we did sort of outline was the idea of um of that mythology and the kind of um, archetypal characters that are embodied in a lot of these superheroes. And it's sort of a, and, and you had mentioned this in one of the other podcasts, I don't remember which one, but you talked about how, you know, movies are, you know, like the new mythology, basically movies and television and the media have kind of replaced mythology in some ways, you know, um, you know, a lot of, I, I imagine a lot of kids don't know much about Roman and Greek and, you know, various other mythologies that used to be taught in school, but they might know some of it. They might know a little bit of the biblical mythology from movies or TV and so on. So it does kind of... Well, they might know it without know really without knowing, knowing the source it, or identifying yeah. the source, but they know some aspect. And I like that uh, myths can get restructured into, you know, maybe modern movies or now this, you know, comic book craze that's, uh, you know, really successful now for movies. Uh, so... I think there's a yearning it seems for like it, that, doesn't it? Uh, because these, these characters are very archetypal. And, and there is this heroic, you know, that you can rise up or become something else, a very transformative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about, you know, psychology and individuation. So there's a lot of times there's a transformative element um, to it. And there's, there's so many different kinds. Um, you could take a standard like Superman and Wonder Woman, a more traditional um, superhero, which... Um, they themselves are actually the superhero. They don't put on a costume. The costume they put on is is the one to be Clark Kent. That's the costume. That's the mask. Mm. Whereas Batman puts on a mask, so these other ones kind of put on a helmet, or you know, Iron Man puts on his. You know, there's some that you're kind of transformed by a, a garment or technology or or some kind of a thing like that. The, the mask that, that these two would put on would be Diana Prince and, and Clark Kent because their, their superhero is itself is innate, which mm-hmm. I think is really neat. If you, you know, you know, we have this inherent uh, you know, inner Buddhahood or, you know, the, the Christ within or, you know, these, mm-hmm. this, you know, God within, I guess as a Hindu might, might suggest. Um, whereas these other ones, you know, maybe, you know, Batman relies a lot on technology, uh, you know, the, bat this and the bat that it's some you know utility belt or helicopter or car or some kind of a thing mobile um to be able to do uh you know do his suit oh, he's, he's an interesting one and we've uh, talked about him before personally not on the show but between you know us and our own conversations you know he's an interesting one because he's he's a very modern uh, sort of version of a superhero almost an anti-hero in a way and he's someone who lives very much in uh in the shadow and in the dark, you know, the dark night, right? I mean, that's the new iteration of him, at least in terms of the modern Batman. If you go back to the sixties version of Batman, I mean, a lot of that, that wasn't there. It's more bubble, bubble gummy and stuff, but, but that. But even the sixties series still had the Batcave. It was underground. They had to go down. It was a, 
yeah. shadowy. I guess dark. it was just less um, obvious in the tone. And then, it, but you're right; those symbols were still there. Yeah, yeah. well, it's so campy and fun, but yeah, there, yeah. there's definitely. And some it's interesting. Oh, bats! Just think of the for bat. sure, when for sure, and you know, but you know, Batman. Obviously, you know, the backstory is that his parents were murdered in in front of him by a by a gunman, a robber in the city. Uh, and you know, he, his whole struggle is really, you know, with this sort of loss of his parents at such a young age. And, you know, then he, he seems to be projecting out his own inner loss and, you know, fears onto these villains and he's trying to protect the city, you know, so it's very much of his struggle with the shadow and the external world, but, you know, he's not, uh, wrestling with his inner demons, um, on, on any level and so you know he's out there prowling around at night trying to find the bad guys quote unquote not remembering that there's bad guys within him in his own psyche as well you know in those shadow figures and I put quotes around bad guys obviously uh, but but you know obviously the 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 villains that he's fighting are malevolent I mean they're trying to do you know destructive things so I mean ostensibly he is a character that is good quote unquote and he is trying to to, to do something constructive and to help and save uh, Gotham city. But, you know, it's still an interesting externalization because uh, you know, he's, I don't know, maybe that's the way he's, you know, working through his own, his own issues and, and he's able to, to survive that way, you know, and don't over psychologize it because obviously it's, you know, it is mythology and it is an entertaining story as well, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. It's a very modern one, you know, so, so much of our modern culture is based on yeah. this idea that, you know, there's a good versus evil and, you know, it's all out there. You know, we project out onto the other, the things we don't want to recognize in ourselves and it might be a country or a people or a religion or what, what have you. Um, and, you know, all cultures project, I mean, all people project, I mean, this is nothing, you know, unique to the United States, but, you know, we've brought it to a level with the, the, you know, the propaganda and stuff that's very subtle in the media, you know, that makes us try to see the world in black and white. And, you know, the thing is people just don't buy it anymore. I think that's one of the challenges with it is that there's a certain subset of people that buy the, you know, the good versus evil thing. But then I think there's a larger, a larger core of individuals in the United States that are kind of ready to look at themselves and say, Hey, what am I doing to contribute to these problems? What am I doing in my own life that I can change that can make a difference? And how can I take back my projections? They might not use that language, but how can I, you know, in Jungian terms, take mm -hmm. back my projections and deal with my shadow figures that are within myself, you know, these unaccepted parts of myself. And I think, you know, Bat Batman, I think is a, is a story of that sort of a, sort of a thing and you know we we stop kind of at the level of you know him fighting fighting crime but although those i shouldn't say that because i haven't read him in a long time and i know they're those stories are pretty sophisticated now so they're make you know he may struggle with a lot of that stuff i know that he he definitely struggled with his sanity and things like that and he was having issues with i think the the joker and you know the the, the idea that they were not that far apart from each other in, in mentality and things like that. So pretty sophisticated mythology, um, you know, unlike, unlike a lot of these superhero stories that make it to the big screen today, which are all good versus evil, you know, saving the world from some malevolent force and it's brute strength and, you know, superior firepower and strength, you know, and, and, you know, kind of just overt power that overcomes the evil. I think those kinds of, you know, and, and it's always violence based, always, you know, who's got the better weapons, the better technology, the, the, you know, the stronger superpowers, et cetera. And, and, you know, that is a, a you know, that's a very dangerous message I think to send because these myths that they draw from and the archetypal, characters that they incorporate into the stories are very sophisticated and they developed over thousands of years and they represent you know the human experience and the human soul and consciousness and development and masculine and feminine energies in in opposition or in harmony and and all of these you know really complicated but somewhat simple at the same time processes that 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 unfold in us and when we kind of reduce that to just this good versus evil, you know, story with the same sort of plot and, you know, a superhero 
flying out of control and smashing into a building and who can make the bigger, you know, CGI effects of, you know, it's, it becomes nonsense. You know, you've lost well, the spectacle and spectacle well, entertainment. I, it's fine, but a spectacle can also have substance. And that's what bugs me about these oh, movies yeah. is that, you know, it, it, you, <laughs> you have at your disposal the greatest technology we've ever had for making these incredible effects. And the stories are just, I, I, they're, they're lacking for lack, you know, they're just, and that's, that's being nice. You know, most of them are outright yeah. awful, let, let alone just <laughs> lacking something. They're terrible. You know, these, this last, you know, batch of superhero movies, the, the, the fact that they keep making these damn things, like I, it's an, it's an exercise in futility, but it's the only thing that seems to be making money, you know, and I understand the economics of it, you know, TV, you know, and, and, and the internet have changed the dynamics of the film business to the point where they have to make spectacle pictures that have international box office. I get it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, blind to that, but you know, you can also weave a story in there. That's decent. That's all I'm saying. You know what I mean? You very much could. And I think, I don't know if I'm not blaming Disney, but um, Disney, uh, the fairy tale, uh, movies, you know, Snow White and Cinderella, um, stories like that. Um, by the time they became a Disney movie or in the process of making <laughs> them a Disney movie, um, they really whitewashed and, and diluted some of the, you know, the harsher elements. Although, you know, of course, Bambi had trouble uh, and lost to deal with. And, and there is definitely some of that. Um, but to make a kid-friendly cartoon movie you kind of had to from some of these grim fairy tales like cinderella was nasty i mean some of the tellings of it are just you know horrible well you know what though, <laughs> like remember, what went on and what she had to go in, through uh, John, and you actually uh, shared this this lecture series with me jonathan young's great series that that he did at prs for that class that that mythology class so the folk tales when i forget the title of it but he talks about that and he's he was talking about how he went to uh you know some sort of folklore scholars convention or something and how the germans and europeans were so critical of americans for leaving out the harsh parts of the fairy tales because they're like you're not preparing kids for the real world there is harshness out there well that's exactly. why those stories were you written. should be scared there are things to be afraid of the world yeah. is is wildly dangerous and the more we try to pretend like we can put foam on every sharp corner and save every kid from any kind of uncomfortable feelings that they might have is freaking nonsense. You know, the world has sharp corners. It's a, it's a dangerous place. And there are malevolent individuals out there that don't have your best interests at heart. And I'm not trying to, you know, you know, make the world look like a monstrous place. It's a beautiful, harmonious, amazing place. And you need to keep a positive attitude and, and understand that, you know, look, God is at the source of all this. And we're all, you know, spiritual beings having a material experience. I get all that. But at the same time, some of us forget that we're spiritual beings having a material experience and they don't have your best interest at heart, you know, at least consciously. So, you know, those fairy tales, I think, try to prepare you for that. And I think that's some of the work that, uh, that Jordan Peterson's doing right now. And he actually, speaking of the, the Disney fairy tales, he does a really, really good job of breaking down Pinocchio. Uh, Pinocchio is, 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 the, is amazing. I had never really, and I, we talked about that a few weeks ago, I think, but that the symbolism and the depth in Pinocchio is incredible. I mean, it, like that film is, is, is so well thought out and, and it goes so beyond the basic fairy tale to add so much more depth and mythological tones, you know, the belly of the whale and, you know, this idea of this marionette becoming a human and, you know, free will and, and, and the, you know, the fairy having connections to like the Holy Spirit to a sort of Christ-like image. And it's incredible. I mean, and it's, there's so much depth there. And those, those artists did know Walt Disney himself was a Freemason and Walt Disney was very interested in mythology. And, you know, there was a, mm -hmm. there was, and Disney at that time, made very specific efforts to put those sorts of messages into their films. Um, even if they had to water them down somewhat, like you said, they still tried to put those elements in there. And that's what I'm saying. A lot of that stuff has been lost to the movies today. Those, those kind of more esoteric or, or, you know, you know, darker sort of elements or the occult elements of things, you know, which simply means hidden. 
you know, but that the hit, hidden mm-hmm. elements are in the dark, right? They are. Um, they're in the shadows. So, so, you know, that's, it's an interesting thing. So it's a, that was a long tangent. And uh, again, we're on a tangent show. So if you've got a tangent, if you've got a tangent, sure. please, please well, yeah. go off on it right now. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm monopolizing tangents. So please take one, run with it. <laughs> I'll, right. I'll take that offer. And, um, and that's a really interesting point about even if something's diluted uh, or watered down um, and made a little more fluffy and a little more cartoon happy, you can still keep that in. I think some of that's been lost. And one of the, you know, the important things with that is it teaches us how to lose. It teaches us how yes. to fail and then get back up and keep on going. It's, we see this even in, um, you know, school and, and other activities with sports and uh, they call it the participation trophy uh, thing nowadays when everybody gets a medal um, just by showing up, which personally, I think there should be scholastic sports and then there should be another tier that is competitive. The first should be not competitive at all. And yes, everyone gets a ribbon because you're showing up. And the other one should be winners only, you know, like to teach the two different things. But having a competition in sports, one of the things that we're supposed to teach you is, um, is how to lose, uh, how to lose the first half and then have a pep talk in the locker room and go back and rally and try to, you know, salvage something. Or if you lose a couple of games in a row, well, there's the rest of the season. And if you fail on the season, there's always yeah. next year, you know, that there's something to be learned from it. And, and you can't look back. It can't be devastating because, you know, or like a race car driver. I mean, if they, he blows a corner and, you know, goes wide or something and loses a couple of seconds, if he, he can't, he doesn't have time to think, or she doesn't have time to think about what happened, you know, a hundred yards behind down the road. There's another corner coming up and you got to negotiate this one that there's, you know, learning from, from maybe the mistakes. Uh, but using that as, you know, like judo, using the, the blow against you as, as the power, uh, you know, that's affirmative. Um, and because if, if then, you know, like these corners being padded, like you're talking about, then this, the harshness is so, um, you know, taken out. Uh, then when we come across these things in life, which we do, um, we're not going to be as prepared if our myths, uh, ours would be if our myths were really showing us uh, how to negotiate some of these difficulties within ourselves, as well as the, the challenges we face out in the world. And if it doesn't go right, um, if it looks like you can get your ass kicked or something, you can, you know, you can still pick it up and keep yeah, on going. Yeah, that, that lesson of perseverance uh, is the lessons of dealing, the lessons of dealing with, with pain and frustration, the lessons of dealing with heartache. All of these things you're going to have to, you know, utilize at some point in your life when you're dealing with, you know, sickness and death and loss of jobs and sick kids and, you know, puppies that die and, you know, all these, these, these things that are inevitable. That's life. Life works that way. If you're born, you will die. It's just that simple. Now what you die into, or, you know, if it's cyclical or whether there's reincarnation or anything after this, it, it may or may not be final. But the point is, is there's, there's, there's birth, there's life and there's death. This much we know, as we know that there's taxes. These are inevitables in, in, a, in, a, in a society, right? So, uh, you know, so the thing is, if you don't prepare for those things, you give kids a false sense of, of, of kind, of, kind of like, how can I say this? Like overconfidence, I guess, and under preparation in a way. Yeah, well, what the result is, uh, if you do face a, a very difficult challenge or a loss, um, then it, it can be devastating. Sure. Sure. If you're not, it could be a deal breaker. You could give up or you could just be so affected by it that, you know, you're, you're traumatized for life. But if, yeah, if we're shown how to lose and how to lose graciously, uh, that's what I love about hockey games at the end of the game, after they just beat each other up for two hours, they, um, you know, they all line up and shake. Listen, that's it. That's the, the, that's it in a nutshell. And, And I, you know, I don't care what people say about, you know, gender stuff or whatever, the way young men, normally and have for eons make friends is to beat each other up and then make friends afterwards. It is exactly how the the whole thing works. And we can say it's brutal and it's this and it's that, and we might even want to change it. But the reality is it's, you know, it's based in our biology, the sort of hierarchical structure. 
And, you know, it's something that we do, you know, most of the friends that I have still, and they're, you know, people I've known for 40 years or someone that I have at, at one time or another been in a physical alter altercation with. In fact, one of my best friends, you know, it was, it was a bully and tried to pick on me and, you know, we got in a fight and, and we, we worked it out and, you know, there you go. Boom. He's what, you know, he's still one of my friends today. It's just this, it's this thing yeah. that, you know, that young men in particular go through women, I think, you know, and girls have a different sort of maturation process. They're better at communicating, you know, they're less violent. Obviously they don't have the testosterone that we have and all of this stuff. And so there's the, some of these differences that, you know, that are in, um, they're biologically based. And if we, we try to sort of smooth everything out, I, it's good. Obviously you don't want kids beating the crap out of each other on the, you know, on the field and you don't want kids picking on each other. You don't want all this bullying and all this, this awful stuff that goes on. I'm not, I'm not advocating that, but to allow things to kind of work themselves out and kids to solve their own problems, if they're able to, and, and have, you know, not jump in and, you know, try to solve every single problem that a child has. I mean, you're doing them a great service by, by doing that. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're helping them to, to mature and to be able to deal with problems so that they can be, uh, you know, strong individuals in a democratic society. And that's what democracy needs. It needs individuals that are able to make good decisions, not people that are coddled, that are told what and how to do everything. And, you know, everything's made level, quote unquote, and everything's made equal, quote unquote. The, the reality of life is there's, there's hierarchies in everything. And there's people that are better at things and worse at things. And there's people that are more skilled and less skilled. There's people that are more talented and less talented. You can see this play itself out. So for us to pretend that everything is the same is nonsense. We should all have an equal chance at things, but we're not all going to equally thrive and prosper in every single area. It's nonsense to think that. And I think that's one of the problems with school today is that they foster that idea in kids and you see children as an example this is one thing we can look at how often do you watch shows like the voice or these kinds of talent shows and how much perverse pleasure do people get from bringing terrible singers on and then humiliating them and why do those kids and young people and adults think that they can sing because no one has told them you're an awful singer you know, you yeah. need to either take lessons or you need to start a different hobby because you've been at this for 15 years and you haven't improved that. that, that I mean, that's just reality. Right. I yeah. mean, it, it's 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 not that you're trying to be harsh or mean, but those those judges actually do those people a service when they tell them you are awful. Do either take some lessons Get, go back to the woodshed and learn your guitar again or learn your voice or, you know, do your do your scales, do what you need to do. You know, get some professional help with that or get the hell out, you, you know, because you're just torturing people with your awful renditions of songs. And, and, and I think, well, and you're fooling, you're fooling yourself. yourself. There's no integrity. And you're not There's honest no honesty or integrity in that. And that's my challenge with that kind of everybody feels good. Everybody gets a ribbon thing. I like the idea of it. Yes, love and peace and everyone gets a ribbon and everyone's equally valued. That, that's fantastic. Yes. But also, but the reality of life is not everyone is equally talented or able to do uh, things. And this is why we have a society where we make, you know, we make room for people that are, are you know, that have challenges, disorders, uh, you know, disabilities and so forth. Uh, so that we can take care of those people because they're not as able to compete in a capitalist society. Right. I mean, that's just common sense. We should take care of the people that can't, uh, they can't provide for themselves, right? And so, you know, we have to remember, we do do those things. So then to pretend that everyone is equally able and has an equal chance at success in every single area is not realistic, right? Well, it's to a set up for a fall. fall you know? because it, and maybe we can take a lesson from, you know, from these superheroes, uh, comic book um, characters, uh, in a nice, nice callback to, to the, the actual subject we're talking about, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> it, was a, it was a tangent that, yeah, that went all the way, way around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> orbital tangent. What did you say? A little tangent uh, that could? 
That's that's, <laughs> that's, that's even that's even well, better. You cut than out. What I said, I but I like that. So I got half of what you said, <laughs> yeah, okay. and I added my own little spin. <laughs> yeah, that's that's even better. Um, well, is that you know if you look at the larger you know scope, say you take a you know a whole group of the you know the DC universe or you know the Marvel characters, you know each one has has their strength, and sometimes when there's like a group of them or something like Hulk, you know he just wants to smash things. Well, sometimes you need brute force and you need a a girl or a guy who can who can just smash things or a machine that can or something and then other other ones have you know maybe the you know stealth you know like batman kind of sneaks around in the shadows you know there's they can all bring different things and if you look at the broader sense you know maybe every kid you know or big kids these days can go like okay well what what is my superpower what is my magical element what is you know, what is my thing? And then really kind of work on that. You know, maybe that's where the cosplay comes in, where you yeah, pick up on a yeah. character or a character trait that you identify with, just like you would with a, a myth well, it's or something. Well, a ritual. That dressing up and that playing out of that character is ritualistic, and you're trying to incorporate those, those, those qualities into yourself, into your own psyche. And so there is a valuable thing in that cosplay and in, in that kind of, kind of uh, world. Now, it may not be conscious no, no. that the psychological aspect, but in a way it doesn't have to be as long as the, the larger context sets up, you know, the fact that, that you can get there, you know, that it's, that's involved in the, um, yeah, background, yeah, for sure. Then even if you're aware or not aware, you know, it's still, these archetypes are still working on the psyche. They're still working on this whole. And if you're identifying with a, you know, a particular character that maybe has a particular way of doing things, a certain power, um, you know, that can be really healthy um, because then it's you and maybe maybe these mashups are people trying to find, you know, well, I don't want to just be Batman. I don't want to mm-hmm. just be Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. There's 10 of those. Yeah, you know, they're trying to find their own uniqueness. That's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think, uh, you know, it's a good it's a good place to kind of kind of leave off. We are at, at about the end of the show. But what one thing I think too that I would recommend, I'm sure you would recommend the same thing, is you know read some mythology, read uh, read some books, you know encourage your kids to read mythology, classic mythology, Greek, Roman, you know African, Yoruba mythology is particularly rich, um, Aztec stories, Mayan stories, Native Native American stories, the Sioux Lakota, um, Chinese mythology. Japanese mythology, there's, you know, Indian mythology, Hindu stuff. I mean, there's a wide range of, of, of beautiful cultural, uh, you know, culturally informed myths out there. And then also read the stuff about, about archetypes, read Jung, read, read Campbell, um, understand how they are different and understand how they are the same. You know, Jung and, and, and Campbell and Eliade have been somewhat discredited in the academic world because of their, you know, their supposedly oversimplified version of, of, of looking at things and saying, well, you, you know, and the cr- critique is, well, this is a European Western patriarchal view kind of, kind of leveled onto, onto other people's mythology. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, you know, they do come from a particular point of view, but I do think those individuals were quite sensitive to the differences. They were also interested though, in finding the similarities and trying to find a common ground so that we could, get along and speak to each other. And I think that's what people forget. They say, well, they oversimplify these myths and they, they minimize the differences. And we are all so different that we can't even possibly understand each other's mythology. That's nonsense. That's the, you know, as much nonsense as saying, well, all mythology is exactly the same and it all means exactly the same thing because that's nonsense too. But there are archetypal elements that are shared by all of these mythologies. And if you kind of look to the, you know, try to get to the bottom of them, then you've got a language or a sort of um, shorthand that you can use to speak to each other, different religions and different cultural groups. And, you know, you know, today, even, you know, scientific, the scientific worldview versus the religious or the spiritual worldview, you know, there's, there's things that carry over these archetypal ideas that can allow us to, to communicate together. And let's, you know, try to find some of those similarities and watch these movies and then try to figure out like, what is this character represent in me? What is this character represent in the particular mythology that I'm interested in? Maybe I'm interested in Norse mythology. Is this a Loki type character? Is this, you know, you see what I'm saying? And, and, and then, and that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's, those are some yeah, of my Yeah, it can work it the other that. way. Yeah. 
look at the look at spider-man i mean if that's what you're into look at spider-man and then maybe try to find the greater myth within that like like start yeah start from where you are but like you mentioned i think that's the key is to start asking the questions okay i like spider-man great he's got a web he spins and he goes around but you know what is it about that what is what do i why do i connect what else sure. is like this in the world of myth and you can get me a, a, a richer broader understanding and a deeper connection yeah, for sure to the, those archetypal elements that are always going to benefit well, and as you an, if you connect as an with example, them. too, like for, you know, maybe you, you really, you know, maybe someone like Thor really resonates with you. And there's a particular, that's a real mythological figure. You know, he's been Americanized and changed and modernized, but that's an actual Norse figure. And so, you know, you look at that and you think, well, what is archetypally in this in this character that that maybe I need in my life? This sort of warrior spirit, this person that's willing to go out into the you know into the chaos and try to fight uh, for for a place and you know be in a person of integrity and honesty and a leader, you know, and these sort of powerful traits that that are you know these heroic traits and that are embodied in that particular you know that particular individual and that can be very powerful to look at that and see what what you're attracted to maybe is something you know you need to develop within yourself not externalize it onto that that particular character but but use that character as a as a mirror in a sense to to kind of look and see okay i need to develop this within myself as well as uh, watch these great movies and but watching the movies does help you develop those things especially if you're conscious of it. And that's why I recommend reading mythology, reading, reading the works of, of von Franz, who is a disciple of, uh, of Jung's, reading Jung's work, of course, uh, Eliade, A-E-L-I-A-D-E, uh, Merce Eliade, uh, fantastic work. I mean, stuff's difficult to read. I'm not going to lie. It's hard to read. The, probably the easiest place to start would be Campbell's uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. That's the most accessible work that, that one can, can read, I think, in that area. And then go from there and, and look at look at the bibliography uh, and the footnotes and so on. You can see where he drew from. So, all right. Well, that is going to do it for our show today. Our tangential Comic-Con slash mythology slash a little bit of uh, 2001 and some of Chris's fun stuff that he threw in there. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I am the author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. Chris is the author of The Spirit in the Sky, and both of those books are available on Amazon if you're interested. Please support the show if you can. We're at uh, anchor.fm slash Cosmic Eye, and you can support us through there. Uh, check out Chris's website, chrissheridan.com, or uh, the Cosmic Eye website, which is cosmiceye.org. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great week. Goodbye, and God bless. <laughs>